top of the fantastic positioning, Morgan. April Dunford, the legend, <laughs> the un unpositionable <laughs> queen of marketing messaging. I am so happy to have you in this podcast. Thank you so much it's for making time. Here. If there's anyone that does not know you, can you tell these sinners who you are and what's up with you? Sure. So I'm April Dunford. My background is I spent 25 years as a repeat vice president of marketing at a series of successful venture-backed startups. And for the last seven, eight years, I've been a consultant. I am very, very focused on positioning. I don't do anything except positioning work. And even more specifically, I only work with B2B tech companies and even B2B tech companies that have a sales force. So their sales motion is complicated enough that there's a salesperson involved at some point in the deal. And generally, they're like growth stage companies, like in market, doing a bunch of revenue. And so that's what I do. That's amazing. Let me introduce you back to the audience because that's what I usually do with people. I really like your stuff. And I came across it before noticing that it was actually you because for some reason you got the positioning thing correct, right? So like you have a very distinct brand with your also your book, obviously mm -hmm. awesome. I think you have this orange color. It has a very specific tint. And I think I've seen your article about like the five things needed for positioning or something like this. And then I saw it again at some point. And then we were meant to speak on the same conference in this April, which is I'm not going to make a joke now, but this April and it didn't come together, but I immediately recognized you. And then I was like, hey, you know what? This is enough. I've seen you now three times. <laughs> now I'm going to talk to you <laughs> because what I really enjoy about your stuff and when I also did some more research on the talks that you've gave is you're very actionable. You're very focused on the niche that you have. And this is also a very interesting thing. Unlike others in this industry, you are not afraid of going into a niche and really hone in on this one. That is my impression yeah. of you. And I appreciate you a lot. And I think I don't know anyone who has a better actionable positioning statement in the sense of, I mean, not positioning statement, but like positioning material around positioning than you have. And I really, really appreciate well, that. Thanks. I appreciate you saying that. Oh, and that's it. That's the podcast. Thank you very much. For that. Okay. So interestingly, we also position ourselves as people, of course, right? So like we have, uh, we have certain things that we like about each other. What do people get wrong about you, regardless of how you present yourself? Is there anything that people just get wrong about you once they get to know that's you? That's a good question. I don't know. I think you'd have to ask them. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. I have no idea what people get wrong about me. So sometimes I think people think that I'm super serious. Like I spoke at this conference last year at some point and I did the keynote. And then afterwards I went drinking with a bunch of people. And there was this one guy sitting across the table and he kept saying, you're so different than I thought you were. And I kept saying, well, what'd you think I was? <laughs> and I don't know what he thought, but you know, maybe I'm just really different when I'm drinking. Like I'm not sure what that meant. Oh, so you did not, you did not investigate. I, I tried. This? I kept asking the question. You just kept saying, no, it's different. It's different. I'm like, different now. I don't know. More drunk. I don't <laughs> Something know. Something is different. I, about I, I you. never got yeah. to the bottom of it. Yeah. I don't know. You know what? Yeah. I'm in an age where I don't yeah. do too much thinking about what people think about me, to be honest. Like I probably should worry about that more, but I kind of don't care. I'm in my, in my yeah, I'm in yeah, my no, you know, no fucks left to give sort of age my career. Yeah, no fucks. By the way, totally okay to it's, swear it's on this podcast. Just We've as done a it already. So go for it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, we're going to be explicit. They're going to market explicit. Oh dear. No, yeah, no, no, no. It's going to be no. I'm. I'm uh, nobody listens to this podcast except for the couple of people in tech that have very fragile egos, and that's fine. You know, we're gonna we're gonna satisfy those as well. Do you think, looking back on your career, which has been like so, maybe just as a question before, but for how long have you been doing advising now? So to be clear, I'm a consultant right now. So, you know, so I, ah, sorry, I work consulting. with companies directly and that that's been about seven, eight years or so. But before that, mm-hmm. I did a reasonable amount of advising. You know, I sat on some boards and did some stuff back when I was in-house VP marketing. So I did the in-house VP marketing thing for, I don't know, 25, 30 years, something like that. And then got completely out of that and went straight to consulting. And so that's been seven, eight years, I guess. Did you ever regret leaving? Well, you know, it took me a few false starts. So at one point, I left a job and I didn't immediately have another job. And I thought, hey, maybe I'll do some consulting, you know, like you do. But I had no clue what I was doing. Like, I didn't know what my offering was. I didn't know what to charge. I didn't know who I was, you know. So I was just kind of freelancing, you know. So I basically lined up three clients. We figured out projects. We worked on some stuff. I don't think they were very good projects. And I fell in love with one of the companies. And then I just went in there and did the VP marketing thing. And I did that twice. (laughs) Where, you know, I came out of the company. I didn't have a job. I thought, oh, maybe I'll do consulting, you know. So it wasn't until I did this one that I really committed to it. And I was coming out of a company where it didn't end very good. Like it was one of these ones where I thought we did very good work and whatever. But then when I decided to leave, like it was kind of a bad situation. And so it was good in a way. I was kind of like, you know what? I think I'm totally done with that phase of my career. (laughs) And, And I have not felt regret about that decision one bit. In fact, I wish I had made it stuck earlier, but I think I just wasn't quite ready. Now, I think it's scary to do these decisions. And I think it's quite interesting because I think from my side, what I do, I still have a full-time role, right? And, but I love my job and I don't, I'm not there for the money in that sense. And I think the retainer advising on the side or consulting, I get it all mixed up with coaching, consulting, mentoring, whatever. It's just the stuff that pays money. It is incredibly empowering, I feel like, because it gives you freedom to say no to the other thing that you're doing. Because while you have a couple of legs going, it feels incredibly empowering. It's not like you have three full-time roles at the same time if you have three mandates. It means that if one of them goes away, you're okay. And it kind of gives you the power to really say, no, I'm taking this because I want to and not because I have to. Sure, I mean, money is always important and all that. But as you said, like we're getting older and then we give less fucks. I've not been that long in the industry, but I've been for 22 years and everything has changed so dramatically. Like, what do you think? So like what? Like, let's let's talk about that. What do you think's changed? I'm going to interview you. What do you? <laughs> well, that's what the product is about, right? Like, I, I tend to talk to a lot, and then the guests never let me speak. So, no, but like, so traditionally, I came from a UX research background. You know, like understanding why our customers doing what they want to do, and then I tricked myself into understand. If I understand them, then I understand myself. Did not work out. <laughs> <laughs> still all my insecurities, everything that went wrong in my life did never go away. And then I went into product because I wanted to change things. And the crazy stuff here, and this is actually prolonged in Europe compared mm. to America, is that I'm not a fan of everything that comes from the US, <laughs> but 
when we talk about product culture and customer centricity, you know, like and really talking about, okay, what does it mean to develop a product in a modern way? So moving away from project managers, moving away from like just managing projects and then kind of like, you know, drilling down from top down, like the CEO yeah. has an idea and then they build this huge organization around and you have 10 teams that just hate each other. I thought that this is what it is. I thought that this is what it is. I had bad managers. If you're listening, by the way, guys, this is to you. You suck. I had bad managers in my career for the longest time. And I needed a really, really good couple leaders, women and men, that just kicked my ass and said, Leah, you can do much better. There's more to this, right? So like, it's not about running around in ties and just pretending that you are a good leader, because that's what I thought it is. I also conflated leadership and management, which is also very, very common in Europe. You know, like if you manage people, suddenly you have more influence and stuff. So I think that's what has changed. We started to kind of rip apart the management and leadership aspect of things. But we also learned that this directive garbage that they fed us over the entire decade before that, it's just mm. not working. And thank God it's not working, right? Because it's also economically better if you actually work for the customer. I think that's how it changed. But I also see this now in consulting, and this is why I'm enjoying it so much, because what I do is not just somewhere in the clouds. It has tangible effects that are measurable on the revenue top line. Back to you, April. What do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. You know, when I started my career, a lot of startups were built from consulting engagements. And that was for a lot of reasons. Like one, there was no early stage venture back when I started. And two, even the venture that was around, it was later stage. Like it was meant to help you expand internationally or, you know, spin off product number two or something like that. So a lot of the companies, yeah. like if I look back at all the startups that I knew when I started, they were very customer centric because they had started as literally consulting businesses. Like we're going to build a custom thing for someone and then, you know, and then they would say, hey, I'm seeing this problem over and over and over again. Maybe we should build a product that's repeatable and then we'll go and do that. So the first couple of companies I worked at, that's what they were. And I think it's a more, it's a much more recent thing where we've had very, very early stage capital. And, you know, I actually think things really changed with the growth of Y Combinator in the Valley. And then all of a sudden there was this interest in yeah. these companies who didn't have a product yet. They didn't have a thing in market. There was absolutely nothing. And then there was all this speculative venture coming in to say, you know, maybe this will be the next big thing. And, or maybe it just flames out and dies. And the funny thing was, is when I started in startups, there was no, maybe we'll flame out and die. We still had a consulting business. <laughs> and so like we try the product and if it didn't work, we just, you know, we just kept consulting. The only way we abandoned the consulting business is if the product was really taken off. So there wasn't this idea of, you know, no. we're, we're just going to, we're no. going to build 50 companies and only one of them is going to be good. And the rest of them are going to fail. That's kind of not the way tech companies felt like when I started. So that's really different. And then it ebbs and flows. Yeah. Like we're in the middle of a funding crunch right now in North America. It's very hard to raise money. And so now everybody's very concerned Everywhere. about, do you have revenue and is this thing actually going to work? And, you know, it, it, so it's funny that pendulum swings a bit, but I don't see it ever going back to all the way where we were when I started, which was, we're not even no. going to start the company no. until we've at least validated the problem and you know, we've tested it a little yeah. bit. That is a very good point. And I think a lot of it is driven by FOMO. They just like, <laughs> they always think that they're missing out on everything. It's just a fear of missing out in the end. And 
Interestingly, if you think about it, there's much more venture capital around than it was back then, for sure. Absolutely. But that also meant that you have a lot of more venture capital firms who are specialized in what you do. So back then it was more like it was more of like an investment business. Okay, we're looking at the numbers, we're looking, okay, this is interesting, like we help you scale, whatever. But as you said, you know, like it was already an established business. So like the risk of failing, it was way less that you would flame out or whatever. Nowadays, because I think venture capital is just handled so differently, like it's coming more from this expert perspective. They think like, okay, we're working in this domain, so we also understand your business much better. We just got into the business earlier and earlier and earlier. If they could, they would probably fund a baby while it's still in the womb of the mother, if they could. I don't well, know. Well, a lot of them are doing these like, like venture studios just, where they do. Like they actually even come up with the idea yeah. and, and build the team. And put yeah, it in and, and then, then you have to give off 8%. There's of not it. a lot yeah, of those exactly. that are actually and, working, but that's a very attractive <laughs> idea for a lot of investors, I know. Yeah, and it is interesting, but I would say you're absolutely right. The thing that people don't understand is that, and with people, I mean those that are not like, you know, understanding like how company finances work and everything, because you have also the side of like the mob, you know, like, oh, you know, like if the market is recovering, then everything's going to be fine and so forth. Even if the market would recover now, right now, like if it would start to crawl slowly back up, the capital is not there to save all of these companies. And they are about to run out of money very soon, very, very soon. In the next three to six months, it's going to get way worse before it becomes better. And I think the problem of this is, is that we still forget that we have designed companies for about a two-year runway in the best case. And the worst that could have happened is, is that right before the correction that we had, this huge downturn, is that if you raised money right at that moment, it's going to be very hard for you to raise anything that is going to be higher than what you had before. The valuations were just absolutely bananas. Everybody was just betting on everything. And yeah. I don't know what my point is, but I think it's just that we convinced ourselves of the hype and everybody was having the fear of losing out and they didn't want to be left behind. And then we lost all in the process because of it. It's like this typical bubble thing. And, you know, I guess a lot of fun. Huh? Our industry is fun. It is fun. It is. I have a lot of fun, but not for these reasons. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. So if you think about your position in the market of positioning. I wanted to make a really, really clever joke there, but I could never get it out. If I talk about positioning, then I usually talk about positioning for marketing. What am I getting wrong about that? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting being the positioning lady because most people don't know what positioning is. So you, so you got to kind of got to take it all the way back and then build it up. And so, I think about positioning maybe a bit different than other people do. But in my mind, most people will say, well, positioning, you just mean messaging, right? It's just, just messaging. And I think messaging is an instantiation of your positioning for sure. But positioning is an input to your messaging. They are not the same thing. And so positioning is also an input to your sales pitch. Positioning is also an input to a lot of the things you're doing in the company. Like So in my definition... The positioning defines how your company is the best in the world at delivering something, some value that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. So in my thinking, positioning defines like kind of the big five things that you need as an input to almost everything you're doing in marketing and sales, which is who's my competition? So if I didn't exist, what would a customer be doing? 
how, what are the capabilities that I've got that the alternative ways of solving the problem do not have? And then what's my differentiated value? Because customers don't care about capabilities. They care about what is the value those capabilities enable. So what can I deliver that no one else can? And then who's my best fit customer? So who am I actually trying to sell to? And then the last thing is what's my market category? So it's kind of the answer to like, what are you? Are you a CRM or a chat bot or what are you? And so positioning defines those five things. Now, if it just became a little project in the marketing department, we'd have a lot of problems. And I've seen this in companies where positioning is the thing, little thing in the marketing department. The problem with that is then we're not talking about it consistently. So you go over to sales and they're positioning the product like, however, you know, telling a different story every week or whatever they think the customer wants to hear. And that's bad and confusing. You go over to customer success, which is involved with cross-selling and upselling and that sort of thing. And they're telling a different story. We go over to product, particularly where we're in a situation where we're doing product-led growth stuff. The product itself has to be reinforcing that positioning. And if they don't understand it, and then they're not going to, that isn't going to happen either. So I don't actually think of positioning as being like a little project that happens in the marketing department. Like I think if we're setting positioning it's best done with a cross-functional team that includes product and sales and customer success and the founders. And that, because we all need to be consistent about how we're applying it across all those groups. Okay. I agree with this 100%. And it's also kind of the message that I give when I try to change anything in a sales-led business when it comes to product-led growth. You have to have everybody on board. This is not yeah. a product initiative, kind of the That's same right. message. Did it ever happen to you that you walked into a business you listen to the pitch. I don't know how you do it, but like I have inventory calls where I try to understand the business, of course, right? So we're not just like blindly assuming stuff, right? <laughs> so we try to understand the business. Everything is laid out. You look over it and you go in your head, you just go like, uh-oh, this is not good. What I'm about to tell them is going to create a lot of fear in one, at least one of these silos because there's a problem, right? So in terms of positioning or like the effects of product-led growth and then the effects on positioning, one of the fears that I have encountered is, is that they are so afraid of losing customers because they're repositioning their brand mm. too much. Is this something that ever happened to you where you're like, I don't know how <laughs> to tell you, but we have to do, we had to kind of now really focus down because you're serving too many. Because whenever I try to say, okay, let's define your ICPs, which is also kind of like a positioning in a way, but like we'll go after a very specific ICP, that means we're not going for the other. Forget about them, right? For the moment, we're just going to focus on these. Do you also encounter this sometimes where you're like, uh oh, this is not good? Well, so there's a handful of things. So one is, you know, I qualify pretty hard with clients. So if a client comes to me and they don't think they, they don't believe they have a positioning problem, then they probably mm -hmm. don't. And so they shouldn't hire me. <laughs> End of story. Fair so, enough. So anybody that works with me is feeling pain, right? And we've agreed that that pain is a positioning issue. Let's try to fix that. That's the first thing. Second one is in my work that I do, like I think positioning is a really fundamental bedrock thing. And in order to do great positioning, you need to deeply understand the customers, you need to deeply understand the product, and you need to really deeply understand the whole market, like how you could potentially fit in that market. 
I think it would be absolutely insane for an outside person to come in and tell companies how they should position. I think that is the definition of absolute insanity. So that is not what I do. (laughs) Because what do I know about your business? Nothing. What do I know about your product? Nothing. And am I going to get, am I going to be an absolute expert on that in what, a few weeks, a couple of months? Like, no, I'm not, right? So instead, what I'm coming with is a methodology and the experience in having done this 200 times And so I'm coming in with a process and I'm the facilitator and I'm going to work you guys through it. So it isn't my positioning. So you don't have to say, you know, we're not having any conversation where they're like, April, I don't like your positioning or I'm not trying to force a positioning on. It's your positioning, people. (laughs) We're working through it, but it's your stuff. Now, the advantage of doing it with a methodology is that you're getting to something that is anchored in something we absolutely know. So most of the time what happens to teams is they want to shift their positioning. So what they'll do is they'll either marketing will cook it up on their own and then they try to throw it over to sales and sales says, what, this is bullshit. I don't believe any of this. I don't know how to sell this. And then it never goes anywhere. Or somebody cooks it up on their own and then the rest of the teams are like, I don't get it. I don't understand it. And I disagree with it. So it may be, You get a cross-functional team together, but what usually happens is they'll get the cross-functional team together and they'll be like, all right, why does everyone love our stuff? And that's stupid. Like, we're just going to have a battle of opinions. And marketing never wins that. (laughs) The founder wins that. Or maybe it's occasionally the VP sales wins that because they're close to revenue. But, and that's, in my opinion, that's a waste of time. Like, we're just batting around opinions, right? So instead... My stuff is all about, well, let's get to a methodology that builds on something we absolutely know. So let's start with, who do I have to position against? Let's start with that. And because we know the answer to this question, we know what the status quo is in the account. And if we have salespeople, we know who else ends up on a short list against us. So in order to win a deal, we have to beat status quo and we have to beat whoever else is in the short list. That's our anchor. That's reality. There's no arguing over this. We know what this is. Sales does anyway, right? Sales knows what this is. So now I got that. This is what I got to position against. This is what I got to beat in order to win a deal. And then I say, all right, well, what have I got that they don't have? And I can list that capabilities of the product, capabilities of the company. We can list these things, you know, and it is what it is. And some of those things, some of the things you've got just aren't differentiating. They're table stakes. Everyone does it. They're not going to make the list. But everything else yeah. makes the list. We fill that, fill a whiteboard full of that stuff. Then we can go down that list and translate those capabilities to value and say, oh, we have this capability. So what? Why does a customer care? What does that enable for a customer's business? And if I go down that list, what you'll see is a set of themes will emerge. And that's my differentiated value. And that just is what it is. That isn't my opinion. If this is your competitor and this is what you got, this differentiated, we don't get to just make value up. It comes from somewhere and it comes from our differentiated capabilities. So if we do it that way, then all of a sudden we're doing something that's a little bit more methodical and it's grounded in something we can touch, right? Like it's real. And it's not just a bunch of opinions. And then it just kind of is what it is. Once we have that, then we can say, okay, well, We're the only company in the world that can deliver 
this combination of this plus this plus this value. And then we say, well, look, like not everybody cares about that. And so what are the characteristics of a target account that make them really, really, really care a lot about the value that only we can deliver? And that is sometimes a hard question because sometimes what you've got is, you know, someone on the team will say, but we want to sell to big enterprises. And you'll be like, yeah, but there's nothing in our value (laughs) that maps to them. You have nothing to sell, it, well, Gary. It, it, you I'm know, sorry, but you just hired is. someone. And so now we're taking we're taking yeah. a bit of the opinions out of it and building up from yeah. you know. Look, at the end of the day, we're selling to companies, and they have choices in how to solve this problem, and we got to beat those other choices. And so they did that. And again, it's not me saying it. It's it just is what it is, man. Like we're just working through the process. <laughs> it is. It- it is what it is. It is exactly right. what it is. And like, if you don't like that, so you this need to was go back journey. to the drawing board on product and build a different product. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's something you can do. Exactly. Right. So, if we get to the point where you're like, well, I don't like this list of target customers, or I don't think that segment's big enough. Again, we don't get to just yeah. make it up. If the product is not doing the, it's not <laughs> well, doing I mean, the job so, of beating the other things in the market for that segment, then you're going to have to build a different product, a better product. Yeah, fair enough. But I also sometimes see things in the mirror in the morning that I don't want to see, but you either accept it or you turn away. That's You have a choice. So I really like this approach where, so what you're saying is, is that you're guiding the companies through a process, yeah. right? That is kind of as objective as possible. And you're also detaching what they have also like to understand the market better and so forth. So I really like this. This is a process to get also to your kind of consulting, to do the consulting in this way. And here's a question to you that I found quite interesting. I had somewhat of a similar-ish approach in regards to, and I know you have an opinion on this, product market fit and scaling stage, right? But like, let's just say smaller companies and the companies that are ready to scale. What I came to the conclusion with at some point is that smaller companies need hacks. That's what they're looking for, right? So like in general, you know, like, hey, you you have so many ideas. Tell us how to do Google ads so we get a 10,000, I don't know, like a 10,000 ACV into the product, 100,000, whatever, right? So that's usually been the process of smaller companies. And the bigger companies, they're looking for repeatable measures. Like, so how do you do this? How do you get to this kind of stuff? How can we set the process up so it becomes Mm -hmm. scalable? How do we find features continuously on a continuous basis? And I've laid this out, and I think it's correct, by the way, right? I've believed this for a couple of years now. But what has happened, interestingly, is that at some point, one of my friends told me, Leah, you are criminally undercharging your rates. And then I upped my rates and I would love to hear your perspective. The first customer that I had that was a multiple X of what I charged before, I started to think again, "Uh uh-oh, they paid a lot of money. I kind of need to treat them different. And I don't know why I did it. I think it was more of an insecurity. I felt like I have to deliver value extremely quick. And that person that you described that was absolute insane, that was me. Right. Because I was going in and I told them, what's up? Right. I lost this account within two weeks because I didn't listen and I did not really do any understanding of the process. And so because I was like, oh, my God, they pay so much. Right. Mm. They want to see everything. And they didn't. And they specifically told me as well, you didn't listen. You just completely bulldozed over us because I have a loud personality. 
did something like this ever happen to you? Because this was an interesting thing because it kind of knocked me back and I'm like, no, 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 no. I got the story right. And just more money does not change anything. It's just the client is still the same. Well, I think there's two things that I think really shifted my thinking when I decided to go all in on consulting. So the first one is, I think there's this very common mistake. It's not always a mistake. It depends on what kind of consulting you want to do. But when I first came out of being a VP marketing, I thought, well, I'll just do VP marketing things for people, right? I just won't be there full time. Like, and so I was kind of thinking that's what consulting is, isn't it? And I think that most companies don't want you to come in and do the thing that the full-time person would do. If they needed that, then they would hire a full-time person. And if what they want is that kind of stuff, they probably should hire a full-time person. So it's not my job as a consultant to come in and do this stuff. So that's the first thing, right? Like you're hiring me because I've done the stuff 300 times and now I'm going to come in with my expertise and my big brain and apply it to your situation. But I'm not an expert in your business. I'm not the same as a full-time employee. So my value has to be different. So that was the first thing. The second thing was just on your rates. Like at the beginning, you don't know what to charge. And so you're just kind of making it up. And I think in general, in consulting, people start too low. Because it's easier to sell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it costs less. Oh, so, yeah. So you start really low. And I did oh, too yeah. when I started. You know, I like I started really low because I didn't know what it was worth. But then once I saw, yeah. saw what companies were doing with the work at the end, it's like, well, this is actually really high value stuff. This isn't just like coming in and setting up your Google Ads. This is like a fundamental shift in everything you're doing in marketing and sales. And if we get this right, it can really unlock a bunch of growth for the company and take a thing that's kind of failing to a thing that's not failing. And so I had to, but I had to get comfortable with that first. Like I had to sell myself before I could sell anybody else that the value in this is quite high. Now, some people think that I, what I charge is expensive, but I actually think I'm still undercharging compared to the value that I'm delivering, like I, I think the price is actually kind of low, even though it's like five times I what agree. I was charging when I started out. But the other thing for me too is I treated consulting like a product, right? And when there was more demand than I could meet, <laughs> I put the price up. <laughs> yeah, that's no, what no, we no, do, but, yeah, right? Of so course. I got no, to the point course. where you yeah, know I was course. booked up six months in advance, and it was like clearly I'm not charging enough. Yeah. Like the price should go up at this point. So yeah. it's that kind of stuff. But I had, you know, kind of a I had to sell myself on it. Like in yeah. order for me to look across the Zoom call and say it costs this much, and I feel very confident you're going to get way more value out of it than that. I had to believe that first. Yeah. Yeah, that is 100% true. I needed two insights before I could do that as well. One of them is, is that I'm a very firm person in terms of my beliefs and everything, right? Like I can stand up in a board meeting. That's not a problem, but I always struggled to charge money for my services. Always. Whenever it came to this discussion, I felt bad. I felt like I have to apologize. You know, like it was very difficult for me just to say a number and then say nothing. I was almost like, oh no, I ask too much, right? Like, I need to get lower and everything. And I was a very good salesperson up to the point of the number. So I had two tips that kind of helped me in this regard. And I just want to say this to anyone that is maybe listening to this because we're talking about this a lot, you know, like 
quitting your full-time role, going into an advisory role or consulting or whatever. Like Elena Bernal posted something today that is going viral, completely crazy. You know, like I quit my full-time job and then I did this and that. And the two things were this. I don't know how the, I think for you, the journey was a bit different. Like you full-time, you just, you just went into it. But I kind of had to do free mentoring of other product people mm. first. Then that escalated into free advising for startups and then scale-ups. And then I was like, hold on, there's too many, as you said, right? And then I had to charge for some stuff. But I was still insecure about how much should I charge? How should I do it? And so forth. And one of the best tips I actually got from a salesperson was that he said, imagine you're not negotiating for yourself, but for your best right. friend. They tell you that in the sales books. And that books. really unlocked it. The sales books will tell you that. Yeah. I didn't know that. April, come on. It's now true. you're telling no, me. No, it's true. Too late. It's true. They tell you Too that late. in the sales books. Do it for your best friend because for them you would right. go the extra mile. And um, that helped me a lot. And it's an interesting thing because there's so many insecurities that are absolutely normal that I just faced and, you know, I tried to put away all the time and so forth. And I think about one or two years ago, we started to write about this much more openly. You know, like what is actually happening? I'm constantly feeling imposter syndrome. I don't know whether you're dealing still with some insecurities, but... Is there something left or is April at a stage where she's just like, no, nah, I don't give a shit anymore. It's fine. Well, I, for lots of years, I had that, but I do feel like I'm over it. But part of it has to do with the stage I'm at in my career. It just, everything matters less now. Like things mattered a lot when I was broke and junior. Because <laughs> like I didn't have a safety net to mess up because I was broke <laughs> and junior. So, you know, if you failed at a job, it was bad. And then I had the additional thing where I didn't study engineering. I didn't study marketing in school. I studied engineering. And so... At the mm -hmm. beginning, but I straight out of school, I landed this job in product marketing. And I always had this thing like the marketers must know how to do this. And I don't know how to do this because I didn't study marketing. And so I made this gigantic effort the first 10 years of my career and like went to all the conferences, read all the books. Like I would have coffee meetings with vice presidents of marketing twice a week because I was like, I need to learn this. I'm behind. And the other thing was I got this VP title quite early and I didn't deserve yeah. it. And that's not me being imposter syndrome. Like I legit didn't deserve it. <laughs> like, I don't know shit. And so, so I was always felt like I was coming up from behind for like 10 years. And then I got senior, like where I was senior. And one of the things you get when you're senior is, you know, that you don't know everything right? Like, yeah. like nobody knows everything. And just because it worked like this in the last company, you're coming to the next company and everything's different. So I had that. And now, and then when I started consulting, I didn't know what I was doing there either, right? So at the beginning, I was like, I didn't know what my offering was. I didn't know what to charge for it. I didn't know how much value was going to drive, whatever. Now I'm at this stage where it's like, like I'm basically at the end, right? <laughs> Like at the what end. do you mean? What do you mean you're at the end? Well, what are you the end. I'm about? not gonna I'm not gonna work forever, man. And so, you know, I, I'm kinda <laughs> at the tail end of this thing. And now I've literally no, no shits left to give at this point. So it's a great place to be, but it's taken me 30 whatever years to get here. But this is a reward. Like you get to the end, and the reward is you're sort of like, and part of it too is that I'm consulting. So you don't get to be like the best 
the world's greatest VP marketing. There's always a better VP marketing somewhere, right? There's there, you you think you're a good one maybe, but you don't get to be the best. Whereas if you're consulting, that it's different. Like I'm doing this little niche thing. It's so niche. It's like I don't think I'm the best marketing consultant. But if you said, April, are do you know more than anybody on the planet? about positioning a B2B tech company that is post-Series A and has a sales team? Yes, actually. I, nobody right, knows okay. more than that. But it's so, it's like, you know, it's a tiny little box. <laughs> but there is this great, but there is yeah. this great confidence in being able to dominate your little box and say, there isn't anybody. There's lots of people like, if you, you come to me and you're B2C, I got nothing, man. I don't know. I can't help you. <laughs> I know nothing. And like the other day I had this, the clients called me up and they had this thing and it was super complicated. And it was like, we got a B2B thing and a B2C thing or whatever. And I don't feel bad about that. Like I don't get my imposter syndrome and go, oh no. I just say, that's not in my box, man. I don't know anything about that. Yeah. I recommend them to one of my competitors. I'm like, maybe those guys can do it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, no, but like, but I'm 100%. not trying to sell everybody. I'm not trying to pretend I know shit that I don't. Yeah. Like, again, the box is tiny. And outside of that box, I'm the first person to tell you, like, I don't know anything about that. I don't, you know, and people ask me all kinds of questions, like, what would you do if you're whatever? And I'm like, I don't, that, there's so much stuff I don't know. But if it's in my little box, man, I might not know yeah. everything, but I know it better than anyone else. Like, we're not going to find anyone else. In my box, I'm going to go to town. Yeah, the knives are out in the box. <laughs> just don't yeah, go in the I'm box. Just, <laughs> I just, I stay in my lane, man. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think this is a beautiful case for personal positioning because we're very, very good in picking out little things about others. And then we kind of blow them up and we think like, oh my God, she has everything under control. It's kind of like the thing that you said as well. Like maybe that's what people get wrong about you. You know, like, oh my God, everything you're talking about, you know everything about. Yeah, that's because I'm not talking about everything. That's right. It's because I got one topic, man. (laughs) That's it. Yeah, it's this one topic, you know, and you also get tired of this fucking topic. I don't. I, mean, uh, I, I don't. Do you know by any chance Terry Pratchett? Oh, the name sounds familiar, but I don't know. He used to be. He he died, right? But like he was one of my. It was one of my favorite authors, and he had two quotes that I just looked up on mm-hmm. wisdom, and I'm sure you can appreciate them. Like he's a very funny guy. He said, "Wisdom is one of the few things that looks bigger the further away it is." <laughs> right. <laughs> And I absolutely love to say the other one is like wisdom comes from experience and experience is often a result of lack of wisdom. And it's like this infinite kind of loop. I had a couple of tragedies in my life in the last couple of years. And sometimes these singular experiences, you know, like I put everything into perspective, make it so much easier to work afterwards because you also, you give less of a shit. But at the same time, this is also incredibly empowering. You know, like you're yeah. just starting up to people and you're just saying like, okay, man, it's great that you're shouting at me, but do you want the stuff or do you not? Like just make a decision because otherwise I'm making it for you because I don't have time anymore. I wasted so much time as a young woman to just discuss with people about pointless shit, just like on the internet included. Yeah. I don't know how I landed now on the internet about this, but you know, <laughs> uh, went off on a tangent yeah. there. No, it's not, it's not good. So because we're nearing already like the end. Is there any advice that you would give someone that would start out completely new? So let's say they're in marketing and they love April and they say like, I want to do what you do. And let's say we talk about really like the independent side of going down into a niche, really doing what you do, doing your personal positioning. Is there something that you would 
advise people. And then you would say like, hey, that this is the one thing that you cannot get wrong. It's, it's just going to save, you're just going to waste yeah, time. Yeah, like I think the big thing for me that was kind of the turning point for me was picking my thing that that sort of intersected with, you know, the stuff I really like doing and stuff I'm really good at and just kind of going deep on that one thing. Like that was a real, you know, at the beginning, I thought I was supposed to know everything about everything in marketing, right? Like I'm the vice president of marketing. I'm supposed to know everything about everything. And then you get senior and you get to the point where you're like, no, actually I have a whole team full of people <laughs> and I got somebody who's way better at copywriting than I am. And I got somebody who's way better at AdWords than I am. And I got somebody else who's way better at doing whatever than I am. And that's fine. Right. And it's actually not my job to be the super expert across every single thing that happens in marketing. That is not the job at all. And so getting my head around that was freeing right? Like part of my job is, you know, the job as the leader is not the same as the job as the individual contributor doer level. That's one thing. And, but I did think that it was very good for me to really understand, again, the box of things that I'm really good at. And for me, even my first job I had, we repositioned a product and it was super interesting and sparked a bunch of stuff in my mind that I was like, wow, well, how could we do that in a more methodical way and whatever. And very early in my career, positioning was my thing, but I didn't, it wasn't until later that I really thought about it as my thing. Like it was my thing in the background, mm -hmm. but I didn't want a thing. I wanted to be everything. I want to know all the things. <laughs> and I don't know. I think if I was younger and starting out again, I think the advice I wish I had a, got earlier was, look, you don't have to be like, just because you're running the department doesn't mean you got to be super expert on every single little thing. You're not going to be. It's impossible. But it does help to have that one or two things that you do go really, really deep on. And then again, if you want to do consulting at some point in your life, so if someone was coming to me and said, ooh, how do I be April? You can't just wake up in the morning and decide you're an expert at something. You actually have to build the expertise, right? Like, so some people, I think, like the idea of not having a boss and being consulting and running your own business and whatever, but it's way easier to do that if you've got this foundation of this expertise. Yeah. You, and you can go build that on your own, or you can build it while you're working inside a company by making a deliberate effort to do that. And I think either way works fine. But I think until you've got that deep, deep expertise, you know, people aren't going to pay you what you want or treat you the way no. you want until you do have it. So you actually have to go develop that. And you can't just say, I'm an expert. You actually got to be the expert. Yeah, and I think the hard truth about this is before you are the expert, you're going to suck a lot. You and have for some to reason, suck people don't want to get through this, yeah. right? And you will suck in yeah, public. Yeah, you will suck a lot and suck and in public. You know, I was reading the classic <laughs> textbook on positioning is this book by these guys, Reese and Trout. It's called Positioning the Battle for Your Mind. Yeah. It's like everybody, if you go to marketing school, that's the textbook you're going to get. And yeah. it's super old. A lot of the examples are really outdated, but it's an amazing book. Like everyone should read it if you're interested in this stuff. But at the very, very end, they try to like tack on some stuff. And so one of them is like positioning yourself and your career. And there's like four pages on it. And it's actually really good advice. But they were more thinking about it like you would in 1982 in that, you know, no. you're going to position yourself as an IBM executive or 
you know, so and so they were all about, you know, you should pick your big company that you're going to go work with and then you can position yourself like that, which I thought was kind of funny. Like now, of course, we would never do that because companies, you know, we're going to bounce around 100 companies. So that's not how we're going to position that. But the other thing was the guy said, you're going to have to try a lot of stuff and a lot of stuff's not going to work. And the, and the quote was, anything worth doing is worth doing lousy. <laughs> Oh yeah, I was like, yeah. Oh fuck yeah! As long as you just yep. move forward, oh yeah. Like five centimeters forward is better than ten meters uh, planned yep. that you never went. It's like, yep. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, now that's good advice. I'm gonna put the book into the sure. show notes for sure. Last question, and then you can finally, finally leave. Is there some kind of trend? Did you see right now that you're excited about in the industry in general, or something that you're betting on still? Or are you like, nope, April is done? I mean, you said you're I'm close, close to the <laughs> end, man. We're nearing the end. I'll tell you what's been refreshing for me is if yeah. I rolled the clock back five years or eight years ago, mm-hmm. we were talking a lot about tactical bullshit in marketing, like growth hacking, right? We were all yeah. hacky, hack, hack, hack. Yeah. Like that's, you know, it, to the point where it was driving me absolutely nuts, right? Because, you know, like I'm kind of more of a big picture strategic thinker. And so, you know, people would say, yeah. oh, we've got this hacky little thing. And it's like, yeah, but what happens three steps beyond that? Oh, we're not thinking about that, right? We just got a metric and we hacked it. It was amazing. And it's like, yeah, but what about, you know, and so... I don't like the big picture, but, and the pendulum has really swung away from that in that. Yeah. Well. Oh, you're, you're still, hacker's going to hack, but, but yeah, I, yeah. I do okay. feel like, you know, I'm having more conversations about, you know, go to market strategy. I put positioning in this bucket, right? Like, who are we? What do we want to be in the market? How do we want to win? Which are yeah. bigger questions than, you know, how do I move this metric by 10%? You know, it, it's more about the bigger picture thing. Like, are we focused on the right customers? You know, do we have the right value proposition? Are we sufficiently differentiated from other options in the market? Do we understand the sales process for this, or the purchase process for this? Are we taking our positioning and representing that properly in sales? Is it crossing the membrane from marketing to sales or does everything fall off? Do the wheels fall off the bus when we get over no. to sales? A lot of that thinking, like if I rolled it back eight years ago, nobody was having those conversations. Now I see a lot of those conversations no, you're happening. Absolutely. And so I think that's good. Yeah. I also think that, you know, when we're in the middle of a recession or a downturn or whatever you want to call this thing we're in the middle of, I think people do tend to go back yeah. to fundamentals and say, look, like, how do I make the most yeah. out of the stuff that's moving through my pipeline right now? And one of the key ways to do that is to just really tight on the story and how are we different? What is our value? What can we do that the other vendors can't? And getting clean on that stuff and making sure it's well represented across marketing and sales. So I don't know if that counts as a trend, but I see a lot of that right now. And I think that's good for business. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I just, I lost my shit a little bit when you said that, because there was one thing that I wanted to say really quick. And that is the people on LinkedIn, people who know that this is the truth, what you just said, right? So like, we're looking for sustainable, repeatable motions that, you know, like that are sustainable, are the same people that ask me, so Leah, you reached 20,000 followers on LinkedIn. 
can you give me a couple of tips on how to do that? And I'm always at the start, I was always giving them tips like, okay, you know, I have to design the hook and then you have to do this. And then you have to, you know, like tactical stuff again, you know, like the mm-hmm. bullshit. Right. <laughs> and then and nowadays I'm just like out of the 40 people where I had really deep one-on-one conversations, not a single one of them is writing consistently. And now, and since then I've changed actually my conversation. And I said, write about something that you're passionate about or don't even start because that's the one thing. All the tactical bullshit doesn't matter if you do not write consistently and if you're not okay like, with failing. I'm, I'm even I'm even beyond that. I'm like, does this bring any business or is this just good for your ego? Do you just like all those likes on LinkedIn? Like the people yeah, I see, yeah, they're spending an enormous is. amount of time on social media, and there's no business, yeah. no business coming from it. Yeah. And you're like, maybe there's other things you could be doing. <laughs> well. The thing that we're doing right now, that's the sense of my life. I don't have friends. I don't have a lot of business, but that's fine. But like, I love these conversations. And for me, this was very, very meaningful. And I hope you also had fun because now we're really at the end. Thanks so much for Um, having me. Just a final thing. Should people get in contact with you or do you hate everyone? No, I don't hate anybody. So (laughs) my website's aprildunford.com. It's pretty easy to find it. And then if you're interested in learning more about positioning, I would recommend my own book, which is called Obviously Awesome, which I think is a good companion awesome. to the Rise and Trout book, yeah. which is the Rise and Trout does a great job of talking about what positioning is. My book is the attempt to answer the question, okay, so how do we do it? No, I really, really appreciate that. And then th- that was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much, April, and uh, have, a, right, have a nice too. day. Thanks.